Please turn with me to Hebrews. Uh, We're going to pick up in verse 39 of chapter 10, focusing on verses 1 to 7 of chapter 11, but we're going to start with verse 39, the last verse of chapter 10, because you know when the author wrote this, he didn't have chapter and verse divisions. These were added later, so we sometimes have to go back up a little bit to, to catch the thought flow. But you heard a fine lesson last week urging uh, us to to, uh, persevere and to uh, endure. That's verse 39. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And so he makes that strong declaration This is who we are. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. Of course, that's the temptation. That's what he's addressing. People are tempted to give up, as we are uh, often, but these especially because they're being persecuted. They're tempted to give up, and he says, this is not who we are. Who we are is what is described in chapter 11. And especially these, verse, these first seven verses, which explain the reason we do not shrink back, the reason we are not destroyed, the reason we, are pers- we persevere, why our souls are preserved. It's not of us, but it is a grace that has been given to us called faith. And I want you to ask yourself if this faith has been given to you. Have you received this gift, which is, as one author says, God's lasso for bringing you to himself and by which he ties you to himself and keeps you keeping on? We begin reading in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, He still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for bringing us into your presence This early, beautiful morning, we thank you for the promise 
that you have not left us alone, but you have sent that other comforter, the Holy Spirit, who is not only one who is able to comfort us and assure us, but one who teaches us all things, reminds us of what you have already taught us, and by his inspiration uh, caused these authors to write down the other things that you had to teach us. We thank you also for that work of the Holy Spirit in which he lives out the life of Jesus in us. We pray, Lord Christ, that you would dispatch him to us today, that you would pour him out mightily on us, that we might understand your word in order to keep it. Would we stand up on it, as the text literally says, would it stand up under us that we might be your representatives in this world today? And those, Lord, who have not yet surrendered to Jesus Christ, those who have not yet committed their lives to him, received the free offer of grace through Christ, would this be the very morning of their conversion? What a blessed thing that would be to be converted at the beginning of Holy Week. We pray it, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in high school, late high school, a friend of mine and I both uh, were thinking that God had called us to the ministry, and his dad uh, was a pastor. He was our pastor. And he said, boys, if you think that you are called to the ministry, you should be doing things that ministers do already, like um, visitation. So he said, we need somebody to visit the, the nursing home, and uh, I'd, like to, I'd like you to do that. So he bought a stack of, of uh, large print devotionals for us, and he said, go out and hand these out to, to the people in the nursing home. And <clears throat> they'll appreciate seeing you and see what the Lord does with it. Well, we went from room to room, and you can imagine high school is a little bit intimidated going into that kind of atmosphere, but it quickly became very affirming because people were so glad to see us, and they were appreciative of the, of the devotionals. And, and so we got a little rhythm going on, and we decided we would spread out beyond those that we knew or had contact with, and and I wandered into a room, and this, uh, this uh, 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 lady was uh, in the dark, and, and uh, the room smelled. She hadn't taken care of herself. Her food had gone uneaten by her bedside, and her, uh, her hair was unkempt. And, and so uh, I walk in, and she said, what do you want? And I said, well, I have a, I have a devotional to give to you. It's not about Jesus, is it? I said, well, yeah, well, yes, it is. As a matter of fact, it is about Jesus. I don't want it. I don't like Jesus. I said, well, do you like Jesus? Yes, I do like Jesus. Have you ever seen him? I said, "Uh, uh, well, yes, ma'am, I have. Now, at that, her eyes opened. She got more interested. There was a there was a look of hope in her face. She said, where have you seen him? I said, in my heart. She said, bah! Get out of my room. 
take your devotional with you. It's a little saltier language than that, but we're being recorded. Well, it knocked me back a little bit, as you can imagine, and um, not only did I not want to go back to her room, I didn't ever want to go back to the nursing home. I'll tell you the rest of that story later, but we are tempted to shrink back. I was tempted to shrink back, maybe not just because I, I was intimidated by her, but maybe, maybe she's right. I haven't seen him with my eyes or touched him as the apostles have. Maybe my faith is not real. Maybe this faith period is not real. Tempted to shrink back. That's where these, these readers are, the recipients of this epistle. They're tempted to shrink back. Maybe this is not real. The fires of persecution are, are increasing. Maybe it's not real. I've entertained that question with just some of our young people this week who are getting ready for college and they're anticipating what's going to come at them, especially in a secular university, and they're asking, how do I know it's real? What if they're right? Can you equip me? What do I need to know before I go into that situation? Well, our author tells us what you need to know is the nature of your faith and the necessity of your faith. And by necessity, that's probably going to surprise you what the author means by that. So here's our proposition today. We must overcome the daily pressures to hide our commitment to Jesus Christ. We must overcome them because Jesus Christ is real because he is real. Now, before we launch into these two points of the, necessity, the nature and necessity of faith, I want to spend a little time here defining faith. What is saving faith? If some of you have been trained in evangelism explosion, and we were taught in those days to make a distinction of what saving faith is as opposed to other kinds of faith. And uh, you remember the illustration you had, to, you had, you have all these keys on your key ring. And <clears throat> only one, there are all kinds of keys here. In fact, I don't know what most of them are for. They do something in this church, but there's only one that I really need to know. And that's the one to my office. And that's the only one that'll work. Believe me, I've tried the others. And so I've marked it with a green color here. The only one. It's the same way with faith. There are lots of, there are various versions of faith. There's historic faith. I believe, a lot of people believe that Jesus Christ, Jesus, was a historical figure. They have a historical confidence that he existed. Or there's foxhole faith. You know, the, the guns, the, the bullets are flying, and you're near death, and you say, I believe, I'll believe, I'll do anything you want me to. And then you're saved from it, and then you're saved from that imminent death, and then you go back to who you were. That's not saving faith. Saving faith, according to Scripture, only receives. It receives. It doesn't earn. It isn't, it isn't rewarded. 
we'll explain what rewarded means eventually. It's not meritorious. It's not a good work that you produce. Faith, saving faith, only receives. It's the act of someone drowning and you throw them a life ring and they receive it. It's the, it's the person dying of hunger and they receive a morsel of bread that saves their life. Saving faith receives the gift of Jesus Christ, his righteousness and his life. Now, let me give you a couple of definitions of faith that I've found helpful through the years. <clears throat> One comes from an Anglican bishop named O'Brien. They who know what is meant by faith in a promise know what is meant by faith in the gospel. Those who know what is meant by faith in a remedy know what is meant by faith in the blood of the Redeemer. They who know what is meant by faith in a physician, faith in an advocate, faith in a friend, know too what is meant by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's writing probably before airplanes, but those who know how to trust a pilot whom you have never seen when you step on an airplane know what faith is. That is, you give yourself to the hands of that professional. And you don't know how to fly that plane. Most, maybe many of you, if something goes wrong, you are completely dependent on that pilot. Now, here's another. Uh, John G. Payton was famous heroic missionary in the New Hebrides. What is that now? Uh, Vanuatu. He was, a, he was a missionary to the headhunters <clears throat> of Vanuatu. And uh, he was translating the scriptures, and he, he, was, he, he had translated most of the New Testament, but he could not translate John 3.16 because he couldn't find a word in their language for faith that would communicate what faith is, which is receiving totally the gift of Christ's righteousness. So he was hunting one day and had his helper, his translator helper, who was also helping him hunt, and they came back. They were exhausted from the equatorial heat, and they, 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 they threw themselves under a broom tree for shade and for respite, and his... His uh, assistant said, how good it is to stretch oneself out under this tree. And Peyton leapt to his feet and said, say that again. Say that again. It's how good it is to stretch himself out under this tree. Say it again. Write it down for me. And then he translated John 3.16 this way. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever stretcheth himself out on him shall be saved. So faith, saving faith, that one key which receives righteousness only does one thing, that is to receive it as a gift. It is to stretch yourself out without reserve, without backup plan, without confidence in yourself at all, entirely on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If that is faith, then what does it do for us in terms of, of equipping us, enabling us 
to persevere in the Christian life. First of all, the nature of faith we find in verses 1 through 3. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Does anyone have a different word for assurance? Maybe substance. Somebody have a KJV here, something like that. Faith is the substance, the old version says. This version says assurance of things hoped for. The Greek word is hupostasis. Now, you actually know what that means because uh, we would pronounce it in English hypostasis. Hypo, uh, I have hypothyroidism. I have an underperforming thyroid. We know what a hippo is. It's a big beast that lives under the water. So under, hupo, hypo. Stasis, you know what static is, static uh, water. That's to stand, stand still or to stand. So literally, faith is that which stands up under, which undergirds. Uh, some uh, would, would uh, translate it a truth deed. You lawyers would appreciate that. It's, it's assurance. Faith is that which stands up under us and, and, and commends us to God. Faith is assurance provided from a sovereign God. The next word we, we uh, encounter is this word commendation. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. We'll come back to the conviction of things not seen. For it, by it, the people of old received <clears throat> their commendation. Now, he's reinforcing what I, what I just explained. They received their commendation. Now, we're, we immediately tend to think of this uh, commendation in our own paradigms, a commendation in the military or a commendation at your place of work, and it's something that you have earned. But literally, uh, this means they have received a good testimony. They have received from God through faith, through the gift of faith, that lasso, as I said, that draws us to Christ by which we receive this faith, by, the, by which we receive this righteousness alone, God gives us a good testimony. God gives us assurance. God says, you have what you need to be rightly related to me. That's why we say sometimes you have to preach the gospel to yourself every day or reflect on the gospel every day because you need to reflect every day on why am I right with God? Is it because I turned in an accurate tax report? Is it because I was nice to my wife? Is it because I, I, I uh, turned in an accurate expense report? Is it because I, I didn't uh, have an affair with a woman that day? No, the reason I am right with God is because He that day has made me righteous and, and I have received it by faith alone. I am only righteous by what He has done in me. Now, those other things are evidence of his righteousness. We'll get to that in a moment. But every day, our utter comfort, our assurance can be based on nothing else except what Christ has accomplished for us. 
our commendation, our assurance, our good testimony comes from God's grace. And it is anchored in what is hoped for. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the good testimony of those things which are to come. One theologian named John Owen, Puritan, said this hope is, what he's describing is this, all things of present grace and future glory. It is the assurance of all things of present grace and future glory. These are what we hope for. Let me make sure you understand what hope is because a number of years ago, in my first pastorate, after I'd been preaching for 10 years, a man came up to me, uh, a deacon actually, an older man who had been in the church a very long time, and he said, for the first time I've understood what you meant by hope. I always thought you meant wishful thinking. I always thought that you meant when you said we have hope that this is something that we're just, we're, just uh, we're, we're, we're anticipating and we, we hope that it is true. We're not confident that it is. But you mean something very different by hope. You mean something that is certain. That's exactly right. So I've, I've always made that, that clarification uh, after that, that when the Bible talks about hope, it's not the way we use hope. I hope it doesn't rain today. I hope the market is up today. I hope interest rates go lower today, whatever it is, depending on which side of the market you're on. Wishful thinking. We don't mean it that way. But the Bible doesn't mean it that way. When the Bible talks about hope, it is certain. It is a truth deed. And what we hope for, what that faith that Christ works in us, what, what he anchors us to, four things. Four things in Scripture that are, that are named as blessed or, or hope. Four things that the Spirit assures us with, that he ties our faith to, that, are, that have present implications and future implications. Number one. It's alluded to here in this passage when he says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. Now, the first point is restoration. We believe that God created the world. Yes, that's right. We're creationists, not evolutionists. But we don't believe in creation as an end in itself. We believe that because God created the world, He is the one who is going to recreate it. He's the one who's going to restore it. God created it. It has fallen. It is broken. It doesn't work the way it was originally intended to. Neither do our bodies. And so our confidence is the one who made it is the one who is going to remake it. And so the Bible says, here is what you may be assured of in the present. A future is coming in which all of this brokenness will be put back together. It's the only way a Christian, Christian can watch the news 
and not kill himself. It's the only way a Christian can visit a hospital or a children's hospital or listen to people's experiences of trauma or you physicians deal with the brokenness of the human body every day and not despair. It's because we know this is not all there is. The one who originally made it is going to restore it. It's assuring. The second uh, way we are assured, the way he connects our uh, assurance to that faith in a future hope is by his return. What is called in the Bible in 1 Thessalonians 4, the blessed hope. Or as Paul says uh, in Titus chapter 2, he also calls it the blessed hope there. But the blessed hope, he says, is how does it function in us? How does the blessed hope, how does the confidence of Christ's return change the way we live in the present? Does it mean I'm just going to sit on a hillside? This literally happened in church history. People will sit on the hillside dressed in white waiting for Jesus to come back. That's why Paul said, Tell those loafs sitting on the side of the hill that if they don't work, they're not going to eat. You don't just sit around and wait for Jesus to come back. The blessed hope, the assurance that he's going to return means we can say, Titus chapter 2, verse 12, no to ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. We live hopefully, assuredly, in a holy fashion right now because our faith is anchored in the future blessed hope that Jesus Christ is going to return. And he's going to reward those who, he is going to commend those who have lived for him. The third thing that our hope anchors us to, our faith anchors us to, the future hope of the resurrection. We're celebrating that, of course, in this coming week, the resurrection of Christ. But the resurrection of Christ is is not an end in itself either. When we come to celebrate the resurrection on Easter, we are not merely celebrating Christ who did a cool parlor trick by rising up from the dead. By rising from the dead, he not only proved his divinity but he accomplished everything for us that we need. He set the pattern for our own resurrection. He set in progress, in motion, everything that we need for present and future salvation. Now, this is a whole different sermon, but just a a quick outline. The Bible connects Jesus' resurrection to our justification. Because he was raised from the dead, we are justified. It connects his resurrection to our adoption. By his resurrection, he was proven to be the Son of God. That guarantees that we are the sons of God. By his resurrection, he guaranteed our sanctification. By getting up from the dead, by by joining us to himself, He enables us to live the way we are supposed to live. By His resurrection, He guarantees our glorification. That day when we will be raised from the dead, physically joined with our spirits, 
and live in a physical heaven and earth for all of eternity. His resurrection set in motion all of those things. His resurrection joined us to himself, and he starts, it's, it's as if he starts pulling a rope, and we're all connected to it. Or we used to have these vines in Georgia called wild clematis. Please tell me you don't have them here. Wild clematis. And you'd find one leaf over there, <clears throat> and you pull it. You could wiggle it like this, and you could cause one to wiggle on the other side of your yard. And so you pull, you start pulling it here, and those leaves are just poop, 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 all over your yard. You're pulling them out. And Jesus, when he was resurrected from the dead, he joined us to himself, and he's pulling a rope. And the day is coming when he's going to say, it's finished, and he's going to give one last yank to that vine, and we're all going to spring out of the grave with new bodies. We are joined to his resurrection, That's, and it changes the way we live now. It's our future hope. And then the, finally, it uh, guarantees it is our, that faith joins us to that future hope of the complete removal of all, not only all guilt, but all ability to sin. In theology, we, 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 we use these uh, fancy Latin phrases just for job security, so we'll always have something to explain. But in theology, we talk about Adam before the fall was passe non pecari. He was able not to sin. He could choose not to sin, but he did sin. And when he sinned, his will became disabled to do anything but sin. So he was not able not to sin, non passe, non pecari, not able not to sin. When you are saved, when Christ joins your life to his, gives you a new spirit of righteousness, you are again like Adam, passe, non pecari, able not to sin. But in heaven, when you're glorified, you will not be able to sin. Non posse pecari. You will not be able to sin. We will continue to worship in all of eternity in heaven, but there is one element of worship that we will never repeat again in heaven. Every gospel-centered worship service should have a confession of sin and an assurance of pardon. But in heaven, that will be totally inappropriate. If Peter says, now we're going to confess our sins, Jesus is going to say, no, wait a minute. There's nothing to confess. It's finished. It's over. That's our hope, our future hope. And we live in that, that anticipation now by, by exercising the grace of Christ inside of us resisting sin. Well, that's the nature of faith. That's good news, isn't it? We have assurance, assurance of things hoped for. Uh, did I say anything about commendation? Did I have that in a... I did. Okay, thanks. All right, necessity of faith. 
Verses 4 to 7, let's look at it again. Let's pick up the first part of verse 1. Assurance of things hoped for, the conviction, the conviction of things not seen. And then uh, verses 4 to 7 are examples of that, what he means by conviction. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. Through faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. And you may not be aware of that story. Just look it up separately in Genesis. But Enoch did not die. That's what he means. Enoch walked with God and was not. And uh, that's all we know about that. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned concerning the events as yet unseen and reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world, became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, this word that we have translated conviction, I'm not sure is a... is a helpful word to us in English, but it's a different Greek word. The first Greek word, translated assurance, we said is hypostasis. This word is elinktas. And uh, there's really nothing in English I can help you with, but you just have to take my word for it, that it means something, it refers to something observable. It's a different nuance from the first word. Assurance is something internal, subjective. The Spirit assures you internally that these things are coming. You're going to be resurrected. You're going to be restored. Jesus is coming back. This second word, it seems to me, communicates something externally observable. That God in His working in you in the person of Jesus Christ produces fruit that can be seen. So sometimes when we're preaching the gospel, some, some people will say, you know, you're preaching cheap grace because it sounds like you're focusing so much on grace that uh, you're giving permission for, for your people to live like hellions to do whatever they want to do. Well, it's quite the contrary. What we're preaching is you receive Christ by faith. And when Christ moves in, he takes over. When Christ moves in by the Holy Spirit, he starts living his life out of you. It's a process. I don't know why it's a process. I don't know why he does it gradually. I don't know why he doesn't do it all at once, but that's the way he's chosen to do it. But he, over the pattern, the overall pattern of our life becomes one that is more Christ-like. So the person who says, as, if, as many have said to me through the years, well, you know, I've believed on Jesus, and I, I, I believe that all my sins are taken away, so I can do whatever I want to. And in fact, you've told me that God is sovereign, so he must be foreordaining that I'm living this way anyway. And I have to say to that person, you're, you're, you're reading out of a Bible that I don't know anything about. Because Jesus doesn't live in a person like that. The Bible says Jesus does not join himself to prostitutes. So Jesus, when he lives inside of you, starts living his way out of you, and it's, it's for your encouragement. It's for other people's encouragement too. 
it becomes observable that Christ is in you. All the credit goes to him. It's the conviction of things not seen. It is observable on the outside that what is unseen in the inside is real. Then he goes on and says this curious thing. By faith, we, um, by faith he was, Cain and others, commended as righteous. Now, again, that's that, that word commendation, what does it mean? It's a good testimony. It's, it's a good testimony. It's not that God is saying, wow, I didn't know you could do that. Good boy. I'll pat you on the back. Thanks for, thanks for, thanks for being obedient. It is rather that God bears testimony to himself that he is the saving one through Christ by agents of the Holy Spirit, and it's, it's, his grace is so amazing that he can make you and me obedient. So the obedience that he produces in us, the righteousness he produces in us, brings glory, commendation, good testimony to his work in us. He puts Christ in us. Christ acts righteously, and God commends the righteousness that he works in us. So what is this business about faith? By faith, Abel offered. By faith, Enoch pleased. By faith, Noah condemned the world. By receiving in the Old Testament, these saints, remember, we've learned this through the whole book of Hebrews, the Old Testament believers were saved in exactly the same way we are. They are saved by receiving a gift of righteousness. God saves them. He moved into them by the Holy Spirit. He caused them to live in a way that was pleasing to him. By faith, Abel offered a sacrifice that was pleasing to God. Now, there's nothing on the exterior that would show why Abel's sacrifice was more acceptable than Cain's sacrifice. Abel offered, uh, he was a shepherd, he offered uh, an animal. Cain was a, 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 um, a farmer, he offered his, the fruit of his crops. In the, in the Bible, both of those offerings were commanded by God. So what made them different? What made them different was the heart with which they were offered. Abel offered a gift of gratitude to God who had saved him. Cain offered a gift that said, now you should reward me. Enoch pleased God because God saved Enoch. Noah built an ark not because he was wise enough to be a good meteorologist, but he built an ark because the text says he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Because God saved Noah, he caused him to do the right thing. God proved through him, through them, that he was the righteous one saving them. What is, your, what is your job today? Your responsibility today is to live dependently on Jesus Christ for everything, not just your initial salvation, but your constant salvation. 
It is to live dependently on him to say, Lord Jesus, get me out of the way so that your work is seen through me. And he does that in ways that you cannot always account for. He makes us, in one part of the Bible says, he makes us an aroma. I don't know about you, but I can make my, I don't have to work to make myself an aroma. Negatively. Uh, But some other substance has to act on me to make me a pleasant aroma. Jesus Christ Living in us makes us a pleasant aroma. Now, let me give you a very practical illustration. A few years ago, I was doing a, a preaching conference with, with uh, Sinclair Ferguson. And Sinclair Ferguson, a Scottish uh, pastor, theologian, uh, was, giving, was telling us something about his testimony, how he came to Christ as a university student. And he said it had a lot to do with the testimony of a businessman that came to his church in, in uh, uh, Glasgow or wherever he was going to college at the time. And this businessman was giving a testimony of his, of, his, of his conversion. And his testimony affected Sinclair's. This businessman said, here is what first got my attention with the gospel. I was touring a business facility, and it was in the days when all the memos were typed by a typing pool. And uh, so some of you ancient members of this class can remember when everything went to a central typing pool. And you put all the typewriters in one room, and everybody's just firing away. And they were walking by the typing pool, and the businessman who was not a Christian was being led on this tour by a businessman who was a Christian. And they stopped at the typing pool just to observe it for a while, and the non-Christian said, that, that one typist has a different cadence from all the rest. Isn't that curious? It's very curious. That, that, that person, you can hear the difference in her typing above all the others. And the Christian giving the tour without missing a beat said, of course, she's a Christian. And they walked on. What he could have said, it would have been as irrelevant to him as if she's a Martian. He didn't see any relevance because he thought Christians were so otherworldly that they were of no worldly good. But he couldn't get that out of his head. And finally he asked that man, what difference, what, is, what did you mean by that? How is it that Christ makes a difference even in one's typing? And he explained to him, you receive Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, but Christ also moves into you. And he changes everything, even your work ethic, the rhythm of your work, your countenance, everything. I saw, that, I saw that happen to that, that pitiful, elderly Mrs. Bah in the nursing home. I finally got enough courage, my friend and I, to go back to that nursing home. And I visited a friend who was, that we'd made in the nursing home was, who was a brilliant Christian. She was just contagious in her testimony and her joy. 
She was an evangelist. She'd go room to room telling people about Christ, but also serving their practical needs. Now, she couldn't walk herself, but she would take care of other people's needs or encourage them. And she just kept going back to Mrs. Ba just over and over and over again. This worried the stew out of her and just insisted on bringing joy to her no matter how mean she was to her. And she'd take care of her practical needs, help take care of her hair, brush her teeth, put balm, lip balm on her lips. And eventually that woman asked her, why are you doing this for me? Why, what, how does Jesus make that difference? It's Jesus, she said. It's Jesus living in me that makes this difference. So I went to visit the, the Christian lady, and she said, you've got to go visit Mrs. So-and-so. And, and I said, I don't want to go visit Mrs. So-and-so. And she doesn't want me. And she said, oh, no, you're going to be surprised. You're going to be surprised. I said, I was surprised the first time. I don't want to be surprised the second time. You're going to be surprised. You go back in there. I went in. The lights were on. She was sitting up. Her hair was done. She had makeup on. She had a smile on her face. Her countenance was so different, I almost didn't recognize her. And she said, boy, I've seen Jesus in the same way you saw him. I've seen him with my heart, and that has changed me. That's what faith is, the assurance of things hoped for, the outward observable evidence of things unseen. Only because Jesus does it all. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have saved us. We have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. And he makes a real difference in our lives. We pray, Lord, that when people tell us, this is what I see in you, we would not be so falsely humble that we would fail to give you praise for doing that which we could never do on our own. And we would ask people, we would dare to ask people, do you see a difference that Jesus is making in me? Tell me about it so I can praise him too. We pray, Lord, that you would help us today to get out of the way. Help this preacher to get out of the way. Help my brothers, fathers here to get out of the way and stretch ourselves out on Jesus that he might burn his way out of us and shine as a light to the world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.